Welcome to the Back in Business podcast. I'm business journalist, broadcaster and podcaster, Nikki Clark. And I'm small business journalist, Liz Barkley. Not that small. <laughs> I should never, ever leave you an opening like that, should I? Big mistake. <laughs> I've waited 11 weeks for that. <sighs> well, I don't, know what to, I don't know what to say, really. Pick out where you left off. Well... I, I didn't leave off. I was waiting for you to say something said. Get on with it. <laughs> We're back on the road in Newcastle or in a kitchen doubling up as Newcastle. Uh, we'll be talking to nightclub owner Tom Corker and venture capitalist Lucy Armstrong about how the city is faring and planning for the lockdown lifting. And in the meantime, I've um, had a pretty busy week. I've been talking to the MP for Newbury. Laura Farris. Uh, she's co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group on women and work. Um, that was a special podcast for International Women's Day. And then Declan and I talked to Steve Rotherham, the Metro Mayor for the Liverpool City region, along with two Liverpool businesses about the vision for the city's uh, economic recovery and beyond. Uh, those are available, obviously, wherever you get your podcasts, such as Spotify, and on our website, backinbusiness.org.uk. But those conversations were the same as the conversations we've been having over recent weeks. There's confidence out there, and that's what really strikes me. You know, Mickey, we talked about this last week. Businesses are increasingly confident. I think it applies particularly to the businesses that use technology, you know, the ones who've invested in digital and the skills to go with it. Yeah, ad adapted the technology to suit their current business, um, which you could cite retailers, for instance, um, classic work on high street, bricks and mortar, but they've adapted, they've introduced technology to online, to digital sales uh, and done it that way. But sadly, some businesses haven't quite cracked that and the news from the retail sector still isn't good. I mean, look at John Lewis was uh, yesterday said it does not expect all of the department stores to reopen once lockdown restrictions ease. And they also went on to point out that a year ago, before lockdown, six, six pounds worth of every 10 pounds worth of sales generated were generated by the stores. That figures now at just three pounds, uh, which shows you how quickly it's moved. The, the boss there said it's, it's 10 years of change that have been crammed into one. And, and I think that, that probably fairly sums it up. I thought that was really interesting last night. Uh, that was uh, Sharon White, the chair, saying that mm. yesterday. And um, But I thought, hang on a minute, if you were John Lewis, why did you not see this coming? Why did you not see that acceleration beginning to build up? Because, frankly, a lot of these department stores just simply missed the boat by not doing their horizon scanning. Well, in fairness, she, she wasn't there. Um, she's only come in the last year or two. So you could say, not me, pal, it wasn't on my watch. But yeah, you're quite right. A, a company of that stature, which has been praised from the rafters for, for, for many years. You know, John Lewis was held up as the retailer to end all retailers. Um, in a similar way to Tesco, of course, in the supermarket wars. Um, and both of those companies are now struggling. In fact, you know, who would have said six months ago, John Lewis, the loss-making retailer? You, you, you wouldn't have contemplated that, but it's happened. And yeah, there are mistakes that have been made. Um, you know, some retailers never even went near online and still haven't. And you've got to think, well, hold on a second. That's not a good business plan. You should be 
aware of these things and at least receptive um, to, to changing the way you work. Um, if, if you, even if you disregard it at some point, say, no, that's not for us. You've got to have a good backup plan, though. You may disagree with me for saying this, but I'm not sure that you wouldn't, as a customer, have stood in a department store like John Lewis's, certainly in Debenhams, and said, this is going to be loss making soon because it's not catering for its core customers. I've stood in that shop and thought, what on earth are they thinking? Marks and Spencers, who are they trying to sell to? Debenhams. Well, they don't know. Marks and Spencer hasn't known for the last 30 years. It's lost track of who its customers are. And it's tried every trick in the book, spending money on lavish advertising at Christmas um, through to bringing in big names that just don't work. They don't know anymore who their customer is and they can't service that customer. And that's, that's part of the problem. Whereas you look at dear old Philip Green, sorry, Sir Philip Green, um, he couldn't care less and he didn't invest. And it was as simple as that. Mind you, he was the person who told me that if I want to know what's going to happen to uh, stores in the future, go and stand in them now and shop yeah. the shops. Um, it's really interesting, but of course, the small businesses that we are talking about do know who their customers are, and they are more agile and they're adapting. Well, they're smaller. In a lot of cases, probably better, and that's why they're getting their confidence yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and they, they're, they're more finely honed, if you like, because business decisions they make impact on them almost immediately. Um, they get the benefit, but if they get it wrong, you know, they've signed their own death warrant. So they are acutely aware of what goes on around them. And they're not stupid, these people. No, of course not. We know that because mm. we get some amazing people with amazing ideas on this podcast. And we've got to be listening to them when it comes to rebuilding the economy. Um, Declan uh, Curry, our business editor is here, Simon McVicker, our Director of Public Affairs Policy and Communications. What's the week been like from your point of view? And can I just throw in those three letters that Mickey loves so much? GDP. <laughs> Don't start him. Don't start him <laughs> off. Bloody yeah, waste of time. <laughs> it is the red rag to the, to the bull mentioning that yeah. to Mickey. Um, the economy slowed down in January. That will cause zero surprise uh, because it's when the national lockdown kicked in. Uh, we saw big declines in retails because shops were closed, big decline in education because uh, schools were shut. Uh, it's not all bad news in those growth figures. The decline, nearly 3%, much smaller than economists had feared, much, much smaller than the slump we had in March and April last year at the start of our very first lockdown. Uh, so that suggests, certainly some economists are suggesting that that suggests that the economy has learned how to adapt. Business has worked out how to continue as much as it can in lockdown conditions and is getting uh, better at it. Uh, the construction industry actually expanded whilst the rest of the economy was slowing down. That may well be that there is some infrastructure money uh, that's finally getting through, that uh, some spending that was allocated months ago is now finally hitting shovels in the street. I think when we talk about retail, the, the challenge for retail is technology. Coronavirus will come and go and will uh, adapt to it. The big challenge is that technological one that you and Mickey uh, have talked about. But I think any discussion that stores are dead is misplaced. Because we have seen Amazon open its first 
bricks and mortar grocery store. We talked a little about this last week. That's just down the road from me in Ealing. There are still huge queues outside it. You can't, I, I've tried for several days now to get into it. I just can't. I haven't got that amount of time in the day to stand waiting in a line to get into a shop. And this is a shop that has no barriers, effectively. You know, you have a turnstile to get in, but there's no checkout to queue at to get out. This is just sheer weight of numbers of people looking to explore the novelty. In the restaurant sector this week, we had very uh, worrying news, very bad news from the owner of Wagamama and Frankie and Benny saying they're having to go to their shareholders for another £170 million just to keep the business going. But at the same time, across the street, Domino says it's expanding massively because its business has been boosted, guess what, by Just Eat by Deliveroo, by Uber Eats. They've got into the technology, even though it's not their technology, they're making the most of it to expand their business. That is the other way to get into the technology. Allow the technology experts to do the technological side and you do what you're really good at, which in Domino's case is making pizzas. Even though there's more money to be made in running the app than there is in cooking the actual pizza in the oven or even delivering it to the front door. That's the bit that really clocks up the cost, is that last mile of delivery from uh, the kitchen to your front door. Simon. Yeah, Fridge well, the thought there. Yeah, yes, <laughs> lots to think. I'm thinking but, about my takeaway for yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want a Domino's pizza right now. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Chancellor, Richie Sunak, um, appeared in front of the Treasury Select Committee this week. And apart from saying that uh, he was concerned about uh, the low productivity of the small to medium sized businesses in the UK. Uh, he said that he was losing sleep over uh, the unemployment rate and the risk in the rise of global interest rates. And I think this is directly linked to what I think is the big story of the week. And it is that in the US, the Biden um, stimulus plan of 1.9 trillion has been signed into, into law. And this is massive. I mean, I was hearing a conversation about this on the radio this morning. This is bigger than anything we've seen since way before Reagan. This is real Roosevelt stuff. And what it means, the bottom line of this means that the bottom 20% of Americans in terms of income will be 20% better off because of this stimulus. And they're expecting a huge boom in the United States on the back of this. Now, that's the good side. The downside of this is there is a chance that this could be inflationary. And if inflation starts taking off in the United States, then it will go international. And then the bank, the central banks will have to look at putting up interest rates. And that is probably the real meaning of Sunak's budget. He is terrified of this inflationary rate. And um, of course, it's early days yet. And I think from Biden's point of view, he's doing the right thing. He's following up on what he said he'd do in the election. Um, and America is a strong economy and can maybe sustain this, but it could have huge international effects. And of course, inflation, which we haven't experienced in many years, hits everybody from us to the small businesses, everyone. Uh, two places that inflationary pressure could come from. One is 
uh, if central banks have to start raising uh, interest rates or the cost of getting money starts going up. The other is the actual price of products. And when you look at what companies are having to pay now to get steel, to get copper, uh, to get iron ore, to get plastics, they've all shot up enormously, 30, 40, 50% in recent weeks. And the cost of shipping goods made in Asia to Europe and the UK and America has gone up in some measures by 700%. Now, I was talking to some uh, electronics uh, companies and retailers yesterday, and the electronic companies that make the products are saying, these are enormous price rises that we have to pay and we have to pass that on to our consumers. The retailers at the other end are saying, we can't put our prices up or customers aren't willing to pay for it. Something has to come somewhere because mm -hmm. if you've got a 700% rise at this end of the pipe, yep. something has to come out the other end. Exactly and right. it's also the inflationary pressures that Simon's talked about there are, are worrying. They've come to the fore this week and you've got both Christine Lagarde at the ECB and the Bank of England trying to soothe worried brows about the, the bond market and, uh, you know, what the impact of this inflation will be, which, of course, in the long run, is going to be rising interest rates. Now, it's all very well Europe and the UK pumping, printing, whatever you want to do, money into the system. While it's cheap, it's not a problem. As soon as you start to get a larger coupon on it, it's going to cost more. And that's where all these plans are going to come unraveled. And that's what the, the, the Chancellor and the ECB and the Governor of the Bank of England will be concerned about in, in the months ahead, that if this gets worse, then all the plans we've made may have to be rethought. Exactly. And I think that's the, that is the fundamental thinking behind his budget. Um, it's not a long-term strategy. It's just worry about uh, inflation. Can I just make one other point? We also have some figures out today about the impact of our deal, our Brexit deal with the European Union in terms of trade. And this, I think, is becoming a big issue uh, outside the COVID issue. Our exports to the EU in January were down a massive 41%. And our imports from the EU were down by about 23%. And um, now, a lot of this may be teething problems, and some of it is related to the pandemic as well, because a lot of the demand for cars, for instance, is just not there at the moment. That's one of the sectors that's been very badly hit. But food exports are down 64%. That's massive. So there are Simon, teething problems here, and the government needs to address them. But Simon, teething problems can mean that small businesses go out of business while the teething problems are sorted out. I mean, I was struck, I was struck by the small cheese company, the Stilton company this week, that said, well, actually, the amount of paperwork we have to do for every batch of cheese we send is costing us 180 quid yes. because it has to have veterinary certificates and all sorts. Um, teething problems can only last so long before they push businesses yes. out of business. And I, I would bet my last point that most of the uh, people being impacted by this are the small businesses. Um, and as you say, in the food in the food side, they're often small manufacturers of, of, of specialities like cheese. So yes, it's a very big concern. And uh, you know, Northern Ireland's been crying out about this for the last couple of weeks, months. And you know, there's growing problems there. So the government really needs to get real about all of this stuff. Well, it just goes to underline the fact of how far out of the woods we've still got to go. 
Uh, well, there, there's one set of problems, the pandemic, you solve that, but there's all the normal stuff that was going to happen that you still have to sort out. Yeah. Well, before we get too gloomy, let's think about what's happening in Newcastle. And hopefully our business people from Newcastle will be as optimistic as some of the other business people we've met while we've been doing this virtual tour of the UK. Now, we're joined by Tom Colker, who is owner of the World Headquarters Nightclub in Newcastle. It's not just a nightclub, it's a music venue, it's a fashion show, it's nights for people with learning disabilities, it's community and socially based. Uh, and Tom, I have to say, that collection of records behind you, <laughs> we all wondered at the beginning, uh, we're, on, we're on Zoom, obviously we can see you, lots of people listening to this can't, um, but is that a real collection? That, that is a very small part of my real collection. I am the, the, the seminal record bore, <laughs> you know, uh, that records are my, are my books, that's why you see them behind me. It's like a forest of records, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable, and to think that there's lots more where those those have come from. If you if you can't see us on Zoom because we're obviously we're posting a a podcast, not a video cast, then uh, you would be absolutely amazed that one person could own so many records. Uh, Declan wanted to know if there was any Tom Jones in there, but <laughs> thanks, Paul Graves, more like. <laughs> there may be the odd one somewhere but uh, I, he's not a predominant member of my collection <laughs> he's not your muse no he's not no. he was 80 this week was he oh, yeah. oh my god mm. yeah. uh, right before we get completely off the track which is quite normal for us on this podcast it's, it's not uh, unusual <laughs> oh very oh, droll very um, droll <laughs> he remembers it that surprises me <laughs> Uh, Tom, what, how are the nighttime industries doing in Newcastle? I mean, it's one of those places that we all head to for a nighttime interest for the nighttime fun. Yes, I think the nighttime industries nationally are, are suffering really, really badly. Uh, bars, it's not quite so bad because they had a little respite in the middle of the year if they had beer gardens, etc. But for example, nightclubs like my own, we've been closed completely since last March. Uh, although the government has said that they plan for us to reopen on, on, in, on June the 21st, that's still very much up in the air. Uh, if we do get to reopen then, there are, we haven't been given any information on what would be required in terms of testing. So I've got things like testing companies ringing me up saying, oh, do you want us to put a tent outside your venue and we'll charge you £10 a test, which would make coming to my club economically unviable. So it means that because we haven't had any clear indication from the government on what restrictions are going to be put on us, uh, it's very hard for us to book shows. So I've got hundreds of people who want to book shows. I've got loads of DJs who want to come back, but I don't know how much will it cost me to present this show because the government not only haven't given us any information, but they haven't given us a date when we can have any information. Boris has just gone on TV and for the first time since the pandemic mentioned the word nightclub and said, you know, you can reopen on, on June the 21st. So, every, so the, the general public think, oh, great, it's all going to go on. But it's massive stress for, for the nightclub industry because we really don't know, you know, what will be required of us to deliver what we normally deliver. And in terms of what we do deliver, you know, what, what I deliver is hundreds and hundreds of young people dancing around, drinking, sweating and hugging each other. So you can't really get a better way to spread a pandemic. So uh, we don't know, are we going to be told we can only open with half capacity? We have, we have no information at all. So until we get that information, in the nightclub industry, there's, there's not a great deal of optimism. But in terms of the city in general, uh, we're very lucky up here in that we've got a really good big group, any one 
who work very closely with the city council and they do, the, they do a lot of comms, etc. So the general feeling in the city is actually quite upbeat. People are feeling good about lockdown, that lockdown's going to end. I think most businesses that can have fairly firm plans on how they're going to come out of lockdown. And I think that other than nightclubs, the situation is very, very, I can't say very, very rosy, but it's certainly a lot more positive, you know, with the vaccines rolling out, etc. Uh, you've just reminded a lot of us here who have not been to a nightclub for a long, long time, and that's not just because of COVID. Bloody <laughs> centuries. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a nightclub. <laughs> what, what the flavour of a nightclub is. I've just suddenly thought, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> to be standing Declan, in the middle of the that white soap. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly being as old as we are has its advantages. <laughs> <laughs> Let me bring in uh, Lucy Armstrong, who's chief executive of The Alchemists, which works with high growth and mid corporate businesses to accelerate their development and success. I mean, Lucy, basically what you're saying is this is funding for startups and early stage businesses in the region. Are you with Tom on his feeling that the city is upbeat, that the rest of the region is looking forward, seizing the opportunities? Yeah, I, I just correct you. We don't provide funding. We're all about it's actually expertise that is the challenge for growing businesses. It's not money. It's never, ever money. Good money will always follow good people with a good plan. But I'm so to... pleased to hear you say that because I've been going on about this for years. And nobody's as have I. I've been banging on about it for years as well. <laughs> right, well, let's do that so, together then. <laughs> so, uh, so I think the key thing, and, and Tom's hit the nail on the head here, is those businesses which have seen the pandemic in, as an opportunity to be lateral thinking, creative, doing things differently. And there are examples all around our city. Literally up my street is a cafe that shut and there's a cafe that turned into a little general store during lockdown one and has now turned into a takeaway, a takeaway soup, different soup every lunchtime and a takeaway meal every evening. Which business is going to survive? The latter one. Mm. So I, I, I share Tom's view. Another lovely example in the middle of our city. We have a, a market in the middle of our city, slap bang in the city centre, and they started a delivery service at the start of lockdown one. Really clever. So lots of smart middle class people in Gosforth and Jesmond, where I live, who normally go to a supermarket, not allowed out, can't get a supermarket slot. So they start ordering from the Granger market, a place they haven't been to probably since they were a student or they were poor. Now that delivery service is self-sustaining and profitable. And that means a whole raft of little local retail businesses have thrived through lockdown and through this last year and are poised to grow. And they continue to deliver to all socioeconomic groups in our city. Whereas before they would only have delivered to some of the poorer groups. So actually if you want to hit leveling up, Granger Market gets a tick. You want pure survival, Granger Market gets a tick. And then, and then you want quality rising and so on, Granger Market gets a tick. And I fully acknowledge I didn't used to go to Granger Market. I now get three quarters of my weekly shopping delivered. So if this podcast gets interrupted, it's because my Granger Market delivery is due this morning. <laughs> You're a total convert to this. <laughs> I am. And I've, and I've been telling lots of other people about it because it's a wonderful example. This should be a Harvard business case. If anyone wants an example of innovation and entrepreneurship, it's not about bleeding edge tech. Sometimes it is. But not always. This is long established, 100 year plus old businesses doing doing things differently, reaching a new market, being profitable and being fit for purpose for the 21st century. Adapt and survive, in other words. Absolutely. 
absolutely adaptive innovation just as important as revolutionary new stuff we've got loads of revolutionary new stuff again i i chair a business in town that does do bleeding edge technology that helps global banks tackle financial crime who'd have thought that was done on the edge of the time but it is and that business everybody sits at home uh, they're lovely lovely specialist super bright computer people they actually prefer sitting at home coming into the office because then they can work whatever hours they like and during lockdown we've done a major investment with nasdaq so there's loads going on loads going on i am i am very optimistic about the future not just of my city but my region can you can you tell me is the loads going on because the businesses the will the mindset of the whole region and the area uh, thinking about collaboration innovation adapting etc because that's coming from the region itself? Uh, or is there impetus for any of this really coming from government? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think largely here, because we're small, Tom and I know one another and haven't seen one another for a year until we've been on this screen. It's very unusual to find yourself in the Northeast appearing on a radio programme with another guest that you haven't touched or met at some point during your life because we're small we're about two and a half million people inside a vast space so we all know one another so that means that actually collaboration is easier it also means sometimes that the family argues most intensely with itself rather than perhaps with some of its competitors that's sometimes a challenge for us particularly when we're dealing internationally and exporting um, but I think a lot of the innovation and the adaptation has come from a we're in this together Let's sort it out together. Uh, again, if I go back to my Granger Market example, just because it's a nice, simple one. To start with, the city council had its traffic wardens being the delivery men. And the city council made its bank, one of its bank accounts available to handle the purchases for the first few weeks before the delivery system got its own bank account up and running. Now, that's the public sector absolutely being flexible and being adaptable. You didn't need a procurement. You didn't need a tender. You didn't need a strategy. You didn't need a business plan that the central government had approved. You just needed some people in civic centre in the middle of Newcastle going, let's make this happen. So there's been a bit of that. The contextual stuff, I chair the Port of Tyne as well. Um, if we're going to win as a nation and become net zero and we're going to dominate building the offshore wind farms uh, in the North Sea rather than Holland do it or Norway do it. That can't be done by the Northeast alone. The fact that the Northeast has got the ports which are closest which will serve those wind farms is one thing and that's a benefit to this region, but that's a UK challenge, that's a UK opportunity. And I think where really the interplay between central and local government central and local uh, people. That's where we often have the breakdown, but that's where the real win comes if we get it right. And that's about learning to speak different languages. Um, can I just ask though, you know, just to take the wind as an example, Aberdeen wants that work too. So oh, there's where plenty does... for everybody. There's plenty for everybody. Okay. Uh, let, uh, let me that give you an example. <laughs> let, me, let me give you an example. So the Port of Tyne has, signed a contract with Equinor, which is Norway. I have signed a 60 year contract to be the marshalling yard for Dogger Bank, which is the world's largest wind farm. That's just one of many wind farms that will be in the North Sea. And it's one thing to be the marshalling yard where all the kit comes together and the people come together and you go out 
and you build it, then you have to maintain it. Then people have to shuttle, literally commute out to an in farm to make, because they don't want people living offshore anymore. So that work will carry on for literally decades. We're just the marshalling yard. The real opportunity for the UK is do all the engineering businesses, all the software businesses, all the tech that goes into not just building, but designing, maintaining. Where do you think the expertise comes for the cables? They're busy whirring these wind farms. How, you need a cable to bring the electricity back. You need a transmission system. That's real high tech engineering jobs, which are gonna to have to sit all the way down the East Coast of the United Kingdom. It's not Aberdeen versus Fourth Ports versus Humber, it's all of us, all of us. And I, and I want to ask you a question about that too, but Tom, this, the, it has a domino effect to you and to the other small businesses. So, you know, how, what are you thinking in terms of your business? Uh, in terms of my business, I mean, we, we deal mainly with, with young people and uh, sort of people who are, you know, who are at university and just leaving university. So what we want to see, we want to see an area where, where you know, education is, is really strong. We want, we want students to want to come to Newcastle. We want them to choose Newcastle over other places. And we want to make the most of the fact that, that we are, in some, in some ways, we are an island a little way and that you know if you go to sort of Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, they all the Midlands, they all sort of merge into one another ever so slightly. So if you live in Leeds, you, you might go for a night out in Manchester. If you live in Newcastle, you don't go for a night out in Sunderland. It doesn't happen. You know, Newcastle is the sort of uh it's the regional capital. And so we and we're in some ways we're a little bit culturally cut off in that we've got our own, we've got our own accent, we've got our own we've just got our own way of of doing things because we've evolved in tandem, but ever so slightly separately from the rest of the country. And in some ways, I think uh, culturally and the attitude of the people is nearer the Scots than it is, say, the Cockneys. You know, it, it, it's a, we're a very, very, very unique, unique place. And I think that we've got a very big and broad cultural offer from creatives to theatres to cinemas, you know, and we've got nightclubs. We've got a really broad cultural offer, which is really unique, which is why I think we've developed this sort of party the party vibe where people want to come to Newcastle the party and people want to come here for short breaks for cultural things and so we are becoming more and more of a tourist destination within, within the UK than I think we've ever been and that benefits nightclubs benefits bars benefits hotels benefits everyone and I think yeah. we are very much off down that route and I'd like to think that post lockdown we can cement that. I, I, I completely agree with you Tom and I think there are two big wins there one is domestic tourism uh, I chair a, a business over in Cumbria that has caravan parks and a stately home and gardens and Cartmel Racecourse. We, we are going to boom in the next three to five years as people have holidays at home. Same for Northumberland and the, and the Northeast. So there's that bit, there's the domestic tourism. But the other bit is uh, when Tom talked about students and partying, and we might all be too old to go to nightclubs, except Tom. But uh, despite Tom asking me to go to his nightclub, but... When students come here, if they have a great experience, and, and there's the national data center here, there's national big data center. So there's all these computer science students, postgrads here, Durham, Newcastle, Northumbria, Sunderland, Teesside. If they then have the opportunity to work on bleeding edge financial crime type uh, things, they'll stay here because they've had a great time in the nightclub and they don't have to go to London afterwards. They can stay here. It's really livable. If you want to have the European headquarters for an offshore wind farm business here, i.e. Equinor, we've got to have livability for corporate executives. We've got to have great schools. We've got to have great culture, Sage Gate said. We've got to have great theatres, as Tom said. We've got to have great food. 
we've got a first ever Michelin starred restaurant in Northumberland uh, called Yem in Wall. We have another one in the city centre called the House of Tides. These are things that make Newcastle and the Northeast as a whole livable for everybody. And that's and post COVID, if anything, COVID has taught us is I want a 10 out of 10 life. I don't want a 10 out of 10 job and a one out of 10 life with three hours commuting a day. I want a 10 out of 10 life. And the Northeast absolutely offers you that opportunity. I speak like a reformed smoker because I don't come from here. I chose to come here. Unlike Tom, I've chose to and I've stayed. And therefore, actually, it just gets better and better and better. I was walking along the beach yesterday afternoon because I had an hour and a half spare. I live in the city centre. Who else who lives in a city centre can be on a beach 10 minutes from their home? Hardly anyone in, in the UK. I remember I love somebody. That livability, though. That's yeah. brilliant. Liz, Liz, I remember somebody at the Industrial Development Authority for the Irish Republic telling me once that part of their pitch wasn't just here's a factory, here are skilled workers. It was to say to the executives, here's that golf course you never tried. Yep. That's yep. five miles up the road. And they were on that a long time ago. This idea that if you want to attract the brightest talent livability is the factor and culture is such an enormous part of that and how interesting i thought liz that tom was talking about the importance of the culture economy when you and i were talking to steve rotherham the liverpool city mayor during the week that was another of the industries that he ha highlighted in among uh, sort of robotics and green energy and everything else he highlighted culture and liverpool's been talking about that for years and years now because of course it was the european city of culture not very long ago um does government are government priorities right then does government get that is this something we need to be talking louder about tom i think in terms of culture the government doesn't get it the government is making a good show of pretending to get it but the government doesn't really get it yet and I think also in terms of the Northeast, the government doesn't get it. You know, there's still very much a feeling among people who are from here that decisions in Westminster, uh, you know, we look, we look up towards Scottish independence enviously. And we thought, you know, we wish we could be independent. That sounds daft, but a lot of people up here feel like that. We feel like there's a bit of a disconnect, you know, and I think that the government need to wrap their arms around the potential of culture a little bit more. But I think that, the real, you know, we, as I say, we've got a little bit separate in that, you know, we do depend on government and we want government to take us seriously, but we're going to, we're, we're going to push it ourselves. You know, we are the Northeast and we're going to be strong and push it ourselves. You know, we have got the countryside 10 minutes away, beautiful countryside. We have got the beach, you know, 10 minutes away. We have also got property prices that are, that can make your work-life balance. They can greatly, if you were living in London and you're paying, you know, you, you, you've got a really high paid job, you are paying a fortune. My daughter's just bought a flat down there and I was stunned by how much she had to pay for it. You know, for that sort of money, you could literally buy a mansion up here with, you know, and you could live really well. So your work-life balance up here, if, you, if we can get those good jobs, those good high-tech jobs, coming up here because of everything we've got going on our culture our location everything if we can get that then people who come here can have a really good quality of life and you only live once you know you don't want to you know you don't they don't want to live, live down in london and you know suffer suffer the smog come up here and breathe the air that's that's my view but, of it, yeah. uh, and i i think i think one of the challenges in the uk uh, and your point about government is London is so different from every other provincial city and every other bit of the UK, but our national government sits in London. So our, our 
politicians and media largely see the world through a London perspective. And government as an enabler, I think absolutely has an important role to play. But traditionally, I think in London, it was probably perceived that the regions were always knocking on the door simply to get a handout and get money. And uh, so that's where something like green energy, it needs a very long term strategy. If I've signed a 60 year contract, um, we need politicians to be thinking in terms of decades. Now, by the very nature of democracy and five year parliaments, I was talking to the energy minister the other day who happens to be a regional MP. And she said, you know, it is unusual, but they are thinking out to 2030 and they're trying to think out longer term. That's really hard, really hard for politicians to do. And in the meantime, people on the ground want changes to their lives today. And local government is stuck with a set of responsibilities which are about delivery today rather than shaping for the future. And I think that's where the tension comes. And where I think central government can get a lot better is instead of writing a framework in London saying this is what a regional plan looks like, and as a result, every regional plan looks the same, you could just change the front cover on some of the regional plans, they'd look identical. Listen to the experts from the Northeast to say what it is the Northeast can do really well and what the Northeast can't do really well. And similarly, listen to Liverpool and listen, listen to the Southwest and, and allow and enable difference. And I know that's the sort of theory behind mayors and so on, but it goes beyond simply the structure of the politics. I think it's got to be about what civil, how civil servants value things, how they measure things, what targets they are set. You know, it's ridiculous that we've only just changed the rules that say you only invest government money where previous government money has been invested and returned. As a result, you get this pressure cooker called London and the Southeast, and then you get other bits of the UK that are like a desert. That, that's not what a democratic society is about. So this whole levelling up, I think they can be a lot more creative, and, but they've got to be brave. They've got to give away control. And that's hard for politicians to do, really hard. I wonder, I wonder what Simon's thinking, because I know he's writing notes. <laughs> but you've almost answered a question that I wanted to ask you, Lucy, uh, because I remember uh, having conversations uh, with Scottish power companies saying, we are being asked to pay too much to get our energy, our wind-generated energy, into too many the subsidies. Grid. Well, yes, I mean it was at that time when it was very unclear as to you know who was who was getting subsidies, how the how the bids were going to work, how the how the whole system was going to tie together. But actually, some of the companies themselves were being asked to pay millions to get their link from where they were landing their energy into the national grid. So, you know, this is years later. Are we now investing enough in the kind of infrastructure that allows us to create those long-term strategies? Because the money has got to go in at some point. And uh, talking to the energy minister earlier this week, wearing my port hat, that, that's what she's focused on. You know, it's one thing to build wind farms and get private investment to do that, but you've got to be able to put it down a pipe and get it to people. Uh, and again, I think that's where government's role is as an enabler. And I would take you away from the money again. Long-term infrastructure investment uh, is very attractive to global capital, particularly in a, an advanced developed economy like the UK. But government's job is to enable that. Now, crudely, 
a big infrastructure fund, they're not gonna get out of bed for 150 million quid. They need at least three quarters of a billion, two billion to be interested. So that's why I said earlier, it's not Tyne versus Aberdeen, it's all of the ports on the East Coast presenting as one UK East Coast for the North Sea, five billion pounds please, and the government enables it. And then it, the work gets divvied up between, between them. And that's one of the problems of what we were talking about earlier. On the one hand, you want a region to talk about what it's good at. But on the other hand, you need government to say, actually, this particular sector or this particular field of endeavor, it needs to be collective. And that's a challenge. That's a real challenge for government. And I don't envy them that. And it's a constant tension. And it's particularly a tension in a, in a democracy. But that's where I, th I think the opportunity lies for central government post-Brexit because it's got the ability to start setting those kind of frameworks. It was starting to do it by thinking about an industrial strategy. I think it was starting to do it even earlier when we laid out the broadband plan. That's another big plus for, for Newcastle and the Northeast, by the way. We've got an amazing circuit of broadband that runs on both sides of the River Tyne, where it's as fast as Silicon Valley. It doesn't feel like it sometimes when you're sitting at home on Zoom, but it's as fast as Silicon Valley. It's the only place outside Silicon Valley that's got that. And it's because we used to have a microchip factory just in North Tyneside, just uh, north of the city. So there are a number of key national strategic assets. And I would encourage national government to work out where they are and keep its agenda to those bits where you can make a national difference and then allow regions to do what they want to do at their appropriate level. You paint an absolutely fantastic picture. And of course, it all feeds through to the small business that you talked about right at the start and to the businesses that Tom's running, those livability businesses that make this an, an attractive area in which to and, live. And, and also, also why the five universities attract people to have a great quality of life when they're 18 to 21. Those people want to stay. And all of this kind of stuff would enable them to stay. I always joke that you can have a brilliant medical career in the northeast of England because we've got great universities, we've got great teaching hospitals, uh, we've got an airport so you can do your international conferences when you're a leading medic, we've got the International Centre for Life for DNA stuff, uh, and we've got a lot of sick people. Um, <laughs> but it's true, it's true, and therefore you can go from, from the very beginning to the very top globally in medicine by staying in the Northeast. We have to do the same for software engineering, for mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, offshore engineering. We can do the same. Thank you, Lucy and Tom, ever so much. Simon, you're looking thoughtful. Well, I just, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's great uh, to hear such positiveness from Newcastle. I'm just thinking about the devolution side of things and the, the, the reason why Newcastle does not have a mayor like some of the other big cities, you know, a, a powerful mayor. And, you know, I don't think you can blame central government in this. I, no, do, no. I do believe it's your own local politicians who just have not been able to agree on what they want. And you've been offered many different versions of devolution and refused them. So I think the people of Newcastle need to get together and decide what they want. Well, central you've just government hit the nail. You've hit the nail on the head. You've hit the nail yeah. on the head, Simon. Because yeah. the people of Newcastle is one authority. There are seven authorities yes. just in the north, and there are twelve, including Teesside. And in all of that space, those twelve authorities, there are only two and a half million people. 
but there are 12 authorities. Yes. Well, Greater and Manchester Turkeys, has got Turkeys together. don't Turkeys don't vote for Christmas and they don't vote to be abolished. Yes. Well, that's, that's your next task, Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, quick roundup. Uh, Simon Declan, what should we be looking out for over the next week? What are we looking out for? Over the next <laughs> week? No, no budget to fall back no, on. No, there's no budget to fall back on. I think that we're moving now to the uh, the the easing of the lockdown at the end of the month. Uh, and I think, you know, you can already see local businesses starting to get themselves ready for the big opening. Um, politically, it's quite quiet at the moment post-budget. Uh, I think we're just going to have to wait to see what happens. Um, I, I am more interested in what's happening internationally around some of these other things, EU, America, etc., because I think that is going to have a huge effect on the British economy. Declan? What may be the most important piece of news for some of our listeners is that the hairdressers will reopen in Wales ah. on Monday. Uh, yeah. If you're English, don't bother crossing the border because no. there's also a stay local rule going into place. But we are seeing the end of the hibernation. Uh, retail, non-essential retail in Wales may well reopen the week after. Uh, this one, the relaxation is underway in Scotland as well. There's a certain amount of argy-bargy going on in Northern Ireland where the local parties seem to have difficulty uh, in uh, digging the calendar, desk calendar out of the drawer and putting a pin in some dates, but I'm sure they'll get to the point. Um, I'm struck again. There's the, Here's another discussion that we've had with businesses from one part of the country where, that's been infused with optimism. And even when it feels dark and miserable and grey and dank, there's always uh, potential and opportunity uh, in dark times. We've got restaurateurs. You think that industry is in real trouble. There are some restaurateurs like uh, David Page, who was big in Pizza Express in the 90s. He says there are lots of cheap sites out there that he's going to buy to put his more modern restaurant formats into once the lockdown uh, is lifted. And then, of course, pets. I wondered, I wondered when somebody well, was going to pets, say that about pets. restaurants. Pets. Yep. I pets. have been saying this for months, and Declan, you're right. There's a big report out today. <laughs> Three point oh. two million pets have been bought during the lockdown. The pitter-patter of tiny paws has been exactly. heard in three million exactly. more homes across the country. So many more new pets now yeah. that the supermarkets are saying there is a shortage of wet food pouches yes. that may well last <laughs> for months and months. You thought Brexit was bad. <laughs> yeah. When Fido can't get his wet food yeah. and has to make do with that tin stuff, then you've got trouble. Yeah. Cats going, are going to have I, to be less fussy. I hope cats, so, because that will make my cats, life a lot cheaper. <laughs> yeah, cats are going to have to eat what they're given. If I Good. was to start a business today, I would start it in the pet industry, definitely. Well, there we go, Ricky. Uh, you and the dogs on the golf course, down by the beach. You see, you're the one who's living the ideal ten out of ten life. Yeah, and yeah. And you've moved out of London to do it. And you can tell it with his beaming smile. <laughs> I did it before I got thrown out of London. <laughs> but it's right. Okay. I mean, you, you go into London now, it's just so costly. The kids haven't got a chance in this day and age in a big city like that. So good luck to them. Quicker we can move out and leave normal lives, the better. Mickey, what do you think okay. the dogs for their dinner tonight? 
this morning they had Carol's, the leftovers of Carol's home minestro- homemade minestrone soup. Lots of vegetable. Good. Good well, healthy that, food. Those yeah, dogs want for nothing. You'll, yeah. hear, you'll, you'll, reap the, you'll reap the benefit of that later yeah. when you have to get the poo bags out. Okay, right, enough. <laughs> we'll be, thanks everybody ever so much, uh, Declan, Simon, Mickey, but particularly Lucy and Tom. And Tom, I just can't get my head around your record collection. It's amazing. Uh, George, Ollie and Ben, thanks ever so much for setting up the podcast next week. Explain we'll to them what a record collection is. You well, have to tell them afterwards. <laughs> We'll complete our UK tour in Blackpool next week. We will look at tourism. And don't forget, you can find all our podcasts, including this one very soon, on backinbusiness.org.uk. Find us on LinkedIn or Twitter at business underscore backin. Come and join us. Come and take part in the podcast. See you next week. Bye.